Welcome to the first Patreon episode of Sunder. If this is the first episode you have ever heard, you are going to want to start with episode one. I tell my story of committing a solo armed bank robbery here in Portland in 1997 and the aftermath. If you start here, you will have missed much of my tale. Really, go listen in order and see what I mean. Regular episodes are broken into three sections. The story of the bank robbery and the aftermath is one section. A second section is analysis of conditions, the world in which we find ourselves, from the point of view of a socialist and a Marxist. The third section of the regular podcast episodes includes examples of what can be done in your life right now, action that can be taken that breaks you out of paralysis. So much of the messaging today is that your role is passive, a consumer, maybe at best a voter. The ruling class wants to convince you that you are to be acted upon and that there is no place to effect change. Section 3 of each regular episode shows you that you have the ability to reject the narrative of powerlessness and instead find common cause with others and agency to change this world in your community right now. I am sharing the first Patreon episode of Sunder in the regular feed to inaugurate and celebrate my finally getting the Patreon running. Patreon episodes will be structured differently and will contain bonus content, analysis, and interviews. Patreon content will include some prison photos, letters, drawings, anecdotes, and a deeper dive into some subjects around organizing and themes of the podcast. I'm running a Patreon for a few reasons. One is that not everything I want to discuss fits neatly into the regular episodes. Another reason is each regular episode takes about 10 hours. That's 10 hours of writing, editing, rewriting, a second edit, then recording, sound editing, mixing, and uploading. That's labor. On top of that, there's costs for the podcast hosting service. I believe the content I provide has value and worth. The last two reasons are combined. I invested in podcasting equipment and feel strongly the need to justify to Ms. Sunder the outlays and costs. And secondly, the plan for season two is to use that equipment to help other formerly incarcerated people tell their stories. That's an investment in additional costs and time. If you value what you get out of Sunder, I encourage you to subscribe on Patreon. For $3 a month, you'll support this independent, ad-free project and get access to bonus content. Win-win. I also want to be clear, I walk the talk. I'm an organizer first who decided to podcast. I work at UPS on preload, an early morning shift that loads the ubiquitous brown package cars. Separate to my UPS work, I'm usually in at least five meetings and three actions, rallies, or pickets a week. I'm a steering committee member of the Portland DSA. I have co-chaired the Portland DSA Eco-Socialist and Labor Working Groups. I'm a member of the National DSA Rank and File Strategy Project. Two weeks ago, I spoke as a rank and file teamster in front of a ready-to-strike rally of over a thousand ONA nurses. I participated in the Portland Youth Climate Strike in order to demand the Governor of Oregon declare a climate emergency. I'm out leafleting and talking with parents at local public schools when possible to support the Portland Association of Teachers. The organized teachers are fighting for my son as a student and myself and Ms. Sunder as parents by demanding better conditions inside the classroom and in the community. The teachers are fighting for the dignity and respect they deserve in their work conditions, which are also our children's learning conditions. I'm attending my fifth round of classes on organizing, and I attended the Labor Notes Conference and the Teamsters for a Democratic Union Convention last year. 
I make banners and art myself, but also am working with printers and artists to produce shirts, hats, and other items for the Portland DSA chapter. I attended a DSA chapter social recently and hosted a Dungeon Call Classic one-off role-playing game for coworkers at my house. I attend DSA logistics subcommittee meetings where I pass on some of what I've been taught regarding organizing, and recently co-facilitated a shop steward training class for New Seasons labor union members, grocery store workers, here locally using a syllabus which I wrote in 2020. I regularly attend rallies and pickets of workers in struggle. I've been a labor salt as well as a volunteer organizer, helping workers win union recognition. None of this occurs on my own. I'm able to do this work because we live in non-commercial affordable housing. I'm able to do this work because of support and assistance from my spouse, because of the training and support made available through my DSA chapter, and through the support of the larger labor community. I also am a spouse and a father and spend my remaining time with my family. I'm a D&D dungeon master and player, sometimes and over the last five years with a group of autistic teen peers of my son, as well as with DSA comrades. And then, when I get the time, I also write, edit, record, and produce this podcast. I do this all willingly. This level of engagement is not for everyone and not required of you. From you, I want simply for you to engage somewhere, if you aren't already. Start fighting for more. But the point of all this is, I'm not bullshitting. I'm all fucking in. I'm in this class war, together with you, and against the bosses, to win. This is the time to decide whether you and yours live on your knees or stand and fight as one. Be brave. Be organized. Be relentless in your will to overcome. Welcome to Sunder. There's a neutral gate. So under labor law, it's a bad labor decision. Uh, you know, we pick it to stop Teamster trucks from, from entering or leaving. This is a neutral gate which under labor law is reserved for exclusive use of employees, visitors, vendors, contractors of any company other than CBS, Netflix, or Netflix affiliate products. Basically means like delivery trucks and stuff like that can go in or out. But it's also a tactic that the companies use to like fuck up a picket line because they'll declare an entrance that they don't want picketed a neutral gate or they'll say that all their gates are neutral gates. So your union needs to have a lawyer, a labor lawyer to fight back against that. It's just like a union busting, picket line busting tactic that you, that you guys might find interesting. Section 1, Advanced Strike Support. In a recent episode, I discussed basic strike support, coming out to a picket line to support workers in struggle. That work is incredibly valuable and will help teach you solidarity at a visceral level, rather than theoretical. In this bonus episode, I'm going to talk about some advanced strike support tactics. Understand that what I discuss in this episode are not tactics you can engage in lightly. Advanced strike support requires a higher level of coordination, discipline, and organization. These tactics I will describe require a group to perform this work that must trust each other prior to engagement, have secure communications, and know these tactics carry a higher risk. If advanced strike support is done correctly, it can inspire workers and put much more pressure on the bosses. If done incorrectly, it can demoralize workers, result in legal injunctions, anger the union position holders, and show relations between the strikers and the community. All this to say, the stakes are high. Don't fuck it up. Always ask, will the workers support this action? Do we have the discipline to perform these actions correctly? Is everyone front-loaded on their roles and inoculated regarding the risks? 
only proceed if you can say yes to all three of these questions. So let's discuss advanced strike support. This has three major areas, strike preparation, bringing the picket to the boss, and strike breaker slash scab deterrence. Strike preparation is working with a union ahead of time to plan robust strike support. This includes discussions of best placement of community supporters, where to make the best public impact, help in banners and signs, recruiting speakers, publicizing rallies and donations to strike funds, offering strike captain support, and generally strengthening and hardening the picket lines. This can include strategic thinking. Which location makes the boss the most revenue? Where does the company have the most resources tied up? Where are strategic choke points? How do you want this to be framed for the clients or customers and public? A strike at a hospital is very different from a strike at a grocery store or manufacturing plant, for example. Many unions and union staffers are rusty or inexperienced at pickets and strikes. Experienced, helpful, respectful support can make a big difference in the quality and results and build a long-term positive relationship with the union workers and with union position holders. Be aware also that a lot of unions are still very risk-averse, top-down business unions that may not want any support whatsoever or be hostile to support. You will want to map ahead of time who has a relationship with a friendly staffer to make a respectful approach, always emphasizing you are there to help them win the strike. Buying or accessing a button press machine for situations like these and quickly making and distributing buttons for picketers and supporters to wear helps build solidarity on the strike line. Amplifying the fight with regular photos and updates from the picket onto social media helps garner broader public awareness and support. Even more importantly, being there to document for the workers, hey, stand together with your signs and I'll take a picture you can upload to your own private Facebook or social media group. That helps workers build and maintain the solidarity, good vibes, and will to hold the line against the intractable employer. Next on the subject of advanced strike support is bringing the picket to the boss. A picket outside of a particularly despised boss's house on a public sidewalk and or flyering the boss's neighbor's houses can also put pressure on the company to negotiate. Same with the boss's favorite cafe or grocery store or restaurant. You can invite the press and stage a mock funeral for all the goodwill the company and this boss particularly has killed. You can stage a brief skit of interactions this boss has had with workers that they especially thought illustrative of why the workers are on strike. You can deliver a giant card from the workers explaining why they think this boss treating workers with disrespect and without dignity is shameful and disgusting. Organic leaders from the striking workforce involved with this action offering testimonials can make a huge difference. The third category involves impeding scabs and strike breakers and pressuring the bosses away from the picket line. Deterrence of strike breakers and scabs cannot be coordinated with the union. Strike breaker and scab deterrence is an important area of support, but I cannot stress enough that this kind of work requires discipline and care. You need volunteers willing to engage in uncomfortable confrontations without escalating outside of the plan. Hotheads and lone wolves cannot be part of your team, and your team must know this and agree ahead of time. There is a risk of arrest or injury. You and your team can mitigate the majority of this risk if you perform your actions correctly. 
Community support on a picket line can engage in actions that strikers are prohibited from performing. Unions risk injunctions, judicial orders that can restrain or compel. If the union membership, for example, physically were to link arms and block a vehicle from entering a struck location, that is not legal under labor law and the employer can file a legal injunction. An injunction that is upheld by the courts can have attached monetary penalties that can bankrupt and weaken a union. Community members are not under these labor laws and therefore not constrained in the way union members and unions are constrained. Community members unaffiliated with the union and acting on their own initiative can undertake actions that impede the bosses and are extremely difficult for an employer to counter. As an informal and temporary group, use secure comms that automatically delete after a few days or a week. When engaging in actions, check each other first to make sure you're not wearing any union insignia or organization insignia, and you must not carry signs with the name of the union nor any organization on them. Make separate signs for just this purpose. Intelligence gathering is important. Workers may be able to tell you shift change schedules, usual gates used, protocols, or names and addresses of abusive management. You will want to tail scab and corporate strike breaker vehicles to find out where they are parking, their rally points, or which hotel scab workers are being housed inside. Note how many strike breakers they are using, where they station, when their shifts change. Study your opponents. I've used the term scab here a lot and should be clear, a scab is someone who crosses a picket line. My favorite quote regarding scabs is an ode to a scab composed by Jack London in 1904. Ode to a Scab by Jack London After God had finished the rattlesnake, the toad, and the vampire, he had some awful substance left with which he made a scab. A scab is a two-legged animal with a corkscrew sole, a waterlogged brain, and a combination backbone made of jelly and glue. Where others have hearts, he carries a tumor of rotten principles. When a scab comes down the street, men turn their backs and angels weep in heaven, and the devil shuts the gates of hell to keep him out. No man has a right to scab as long as there is a pool of water deep enough to drown his body in, or a rope long enough to hang his carcass with. Judas Iscariot was a gentleman compared with a scab. For betraying his master, he had character enough to hang himself. A scab hasn't. Esau sold his birthright for a mess of pottage. Judas Iscariot sold his savior for 30 pieces of silver. Benedict Arnold sold his country for a promise of a commission in the British Army. The modern strikebreaker sells his birthright, his country, his wife, his children, and his fellow men for an unfulfilled promise from his employer, trust, or corporation. So here are some examples of advanced deterrence activities. Sending in a team to covertly sticker products produced by the company in store aisles. Leafleting outside of stores to educate the public on why they may wish to boycott products during the strike. Flooding application sites that hire scabs with false applications. Blocking entrance to a scab parking lot. Blocking entrance or egress of a scab bus or vehicle onto the site creating a gauntlet of angry community members vocally shaming scabs and identifying by name scabs and abusive managers, staging car, quote, breakdowns, unquote, that block scab vehicles, waking up everyone in the scab hotel in the middle of the night with a car caravan of honking cars 
While flyers are distributed that make it clear the reason guests are being woken up is scabs are staying here. Pulling a fire alarm in the middle of the night at that same said hotel, again with a clear messaging that this is be happening because the hotel is housing scabs and the community is unhappy. Mobile or flying pickets, as they are sometimes referred to, involves following or being ready ahead of scab vehicles attempting to deliver or pick up materials or scab workers. If a distributor is using scab labor, showing up where they deliver and picketing the vehicle can put pressure on the scab worker, the receiver, and the boss. Momentarily unattended tractor trailers in a loading dock picking up or delivering goods can have the kingpin removed that attaches the rig to the trailer. If the scab driver misses this, the tractor trailer will drop from a few inches to a few feet and be extremely difficult to reattach or move, blocking access for other rigs to use that dock. To be clear, a kingpin attack will require multiple rigs or sites hit simultaneously to make it clear that this is a targeted response to scabbing. Also understand this is something you can do once, a second round will be too high risk. But also the boss will now be paranoid and worried and have to change routines and spread the resources out more and more and give assurances to their commercial partners that the blocked docks won't be blocked again. If scabs regularly go to an outside area of a work facility on break or lunch, a bag of well-rotted fish heads or rotten eggs tossed into the break area can make a clear point. Adding a padlocked heavy chain or hardened bicycle lock on a delivery gate in a place that's hard to reach can delay exit, entrance, or access. Many of these activities may put you in direct contract with hired strike breakers. It's important to be ready for that interaction and to plan ahead. If you block a scab bus, strike breakers will try to physically get between you and the bus and clear the path. Boots or shoes with toe protection are advised. Strike breakers are sometimes trained to stomp on toes in close quarters. Strike breakers often hire military veterans. Strike breakers will call the police. Be ready for that interaction as well. Unless the plan is to get arrested or cited, and generally I'm going to tell you that's not a good plan. When the cops show up, be respectful and follow their instructions. Assigning a cop talker, someone with a cool head who can interact with the police, can be useful sometimes. If the scab bus had to sit out in the street for 45 minutes while a group of angry citizens yelled, blew whistles, waved signs, and told the scabs to fuck off, that's a victory, as long as the workers on the picket line are okay with it. In the majority of situations when the cops show and give instructions, follow the instructions and take the win. You'll, you will be back at it next shift, next hour, next day. Your work is to make the strikes suck ass for the scabs and the strike breakers and the boss, and to raise the morale of the strikers. Your goal is not to get your car towed or yourself in jail. Be ready, if you get a ticket, to have your volunteer, covert group, donate to cover the ticket costs. Three tips to scab disruption. First, don't be predictable. Rotate randomly and change your actions so that the strike breakers and bosses have to be hypervigilant and have to spread their resources thin and can't prepare effectively. Strike breakers will generally begin to adjust your tactics and you want that learning curve and counteraction to be hard for them. Second tip, outnumber strike breakers at any action. Your strength is in numbers. If you are outnumbered, that means the strike breakers have more power to control the situation and may become emboldened. This especially applies to any actions far away from the strike line or media cameras. Don't engage in a scenario where strike breakers think they can rough you up and get away with it. 
The third tip is always ask yourselves, is this something that when the striking workers witness or hear about, will this embolden the workers and will they approve broadly? If you engage in advanced strike support and the workers feel alienated or sidelined by your actions, then you have failed and should step back and reassess immediately. You are there to empower the striking workers, not to get ahead of them. Do not ever think you are leading. You are an ally. Act accordingly. All of this is delicate and nuanced because you cannot legally coordinate with union members. You will want community members to be able to report from the strike line as often as possible to solicit and then share the opinions of the rank-and-file members heard on the strike line. Debrief after actions and be clear about what went well, what happened that was unexpected, any factors you missed in your assessment. Some actions will likely go more smoothly than others. Watch carefully for situations that devolve into chaos. Be able to reassess and pull out. Have each other's backs and praise smart, decisive, useful action. I want to be clear as well that I'm speaking generally, but I've personally engaged in many of these actions successfully with comrades whom I respect and trust. It puts massive pressure on the corporate strikebreakers to not look like incompetent contractors earning ridiculous fees from their worried clients, who you want to be thinking about how they need to get to the negotiating table and make the concessions required to end the strike. It can put direct pressure on corporate managers and their stooges and stress them out heavily when instead of making decisions about workers on a spreadsheet, there are angry community members confronting them in front of their house, in their neighborhood, and in front of their neighbors. Understand also that these corporate overlords are only too happy at the bargaining table to tell workers that the workers and their families deserve less, that they should feel pain and be squeezed, their housing threatened, their kids' college fund depleted, for workers to go on food stamps, to take second and third jobs, to feel immense pressure and pain. Do not ever ever, ever feel sorry for management. They are vampires. They are parasites here to tell the worker they should live on their knees and beg for scraps under the table. To hell with them, and to hell thrice over the burgeoning corporate strikebreaker industry, composed of the lowest scum on earth. At the same time, keep your mind sharp. You want the masters, not the servants. Aim for the boss. Make the overlords think twice about strikebreaking in your town. Make the strikebreakers tell these corpulent bosses that they charge a higher rate for strikebreaking in your town because the community here fights back hard and plays the win. What happened was that accumulated uh, grievances tended to explode into forms of widespread militant direct action taken by newly organized or unorganized workers determined to really compel employers uh, uh, to agree to better conditions and so on. And, and therefore, it was a revolt that involved a, a quite a process of radicalization, a counterculture um, that represented a, cel a celebration of working class solidarity, aggressive uh, 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 strike action and, ma and mass picketing and so on. Now, Inevitably, what this meant was that those workers who threatened to break the collective solidarity of strikers by crossing a picket line were viewed with, uh, as the mortal enemy who had to be stopped at all costs. And it's in, in this context that the violent dimension of the strikers versus scabs relationship really begins to uh, becomes, uh, becomes manifest. Let me look, first of all, at the question of the scabs and uh, uh, the opposition to them. 
scabs, of course, who continued to work and um, uh, wanted to cross a picket line were motivated by different factors. I mean, th there was, you know, perhaps immediate in income needs, uh, sense of fear of home responsibility or loyalty to employers or whatever. Although it, it would appear that some scabs, particularly those who were imported from outside, did it as an act of defiance against uh, unionism. Whatever their varied motives, it's clear that most scabs had little sense of solidarity with their fellow workers and saw the need, you know, basically for individual advantage as opposed to any sort of notions of, collect of collectivism. Section two, Knaves Out. So Patreon episodes, as I mentioned, are structured differently than the regular episodes, so bear with me as we move to a different subject. In a number of episodes I've talked about prison organizing and emphasized the potential solidaristic side of prison life, but want to acknowledge the real percentage of mercenary and unorganized incarcerated who lack class consciousness. While I was inside, I met plenty of incarcerated men who were only too willing to betray everyone around them to get ahead. Being a, quote, player, unquote, was more often than not the ideal of getting ahead by being more ruthless, more willing to destroy others to succeed in the game, the game being capitalist accumulation. All acknowledge the game to be entirely unfair. The game of capitalism is to pit one against the other, competing not only to get ahead, not only as a poison to the community one lives in, but to more generally stand on top of the bodies and lives of others that you would feed through the meat grinder instead of you. Joey Diaz, the comedian and actor who lived a criminal lifestyle for many years, recounts the relationship of criminals succinctly, describing mid-level drug dealers who pay off cops in a number of ways, including by giving cops competitors and lower-level drug dealers to eat, in return for being left alone for now. In the amazing podcast Blowback, the hosts recount the role of the CIA in Afghanistan, who worked with some of the worst of the warlord criminals who would murder civilians, children, and aid workers, execute entire villages, grow and export literal tonnage of heroin into world markets, the U.S. consistently being the largest illegal drug market despite this nation only holding 4% of the world population. But the consistent role of the CIA was to protect these brutal criminals as these warlords used their forces to murder their political and criminal competitors. In the bank heist movie Heat, the character played by the rapper Tone Loke gives up information to the cocaine-addicted detective played by Al Pacino in return for a promise to raid the competitor's chop shop operation. In the movie El Sicario, the CIA works with a revenge-driven former attorney played by Benicio del Toro who it turns out is working on behalf of the Medellin cartel to destroy the competition and consolidate the drug trade. These movies are fictional, but the relationship of intelligence agencies and cops to criminals depicted is accurate. Amongst criminal co-conspirators, the usual play is that someone is going to rat out the others first to get immunity from prosecution or light sentence, or else frame the others as patsies to hide and minimize their own role and take the fall. A listener in front of the podcast, Joshua, asked recently why I regularly characterize my bank robbery as a solo armed bank robbery. One reason is, if talking to a convict about their crime, if they committed a crime with other criminals, the next unspoken question is, who told on who? Because it is extremely common that someone cut a deal and told on the others in return for a lighter sentence. Another reason I emphasize that it was a solo armed bank robbery is to put my crime in contrast 
the work I do now. Socialism and labor organizing cannot be a solo endeavor. The contrast is between the individual, isolated and powerless under capitalism, and the collective nature and power of people in socialism. Back to discussing the class consciousness of prisoners or criminals. In Marx's terms, criminals are the lumpen proletariat, the knaves or ragged of society, depending on your translation. These are the members of the lowest class order, believed by many to lack class consciousness, and a class that is considered by many movements to be irredeemable. The Black Panther Party and the Young Lords have disputed this claim through real action. I agree with their assessments. Many political prisoners sent into the prisons in the 1960s and 1970s then worked to build class consciousness in prison with varying but real degrees of success. I would also mention that one criminal and prisoner from the 1940s, a man named Malcolm Little, known as Detroit Red, would later change his name to Malcolm X. Eugene Debs, the union leader and socialist, spoke about this underclass. I'll share a clip of Matt Crispin quoting Debs, and say also that Matt Crispin has been a real influence on my engagement within DSA and socialism, and that I wish him a speedy and full recovery from his recent hospitalization, and congratulations to him and Amber on the birth of their daughter. Your Honor, years ago I recognized my kinship with all living beings, and I made up my mind that I was not one bit better than the meanest on earth. I said then, and I say now, that while there is a lower class, I am in it, and while there is a criminal element, I am of it, and while there is a soul in prison, I am not free. I listened to all that was said in this court in support and justification of this prosecution, but my mind remained unchanged. I look upon the espionage law as a despotic enactment in flagrant conflict with democratic principles and with the spirit of free institutions. Your Honor, I have stated in this court that I am opposed to the social system in which we live, that I believe in a fundamental change, but if possible, by peaceful and orderly means. Standing here this morning, I recall my boyhood. At 14, I went to work in a railroad shop. At 16, I was firing a freight engine on a railroad. I remember all the hardships and privations of that early day, and from that time until now, my heart has been with the working class. I could have been in Congress long ago. I have preferred to go to prison. I am thinking this morning of the men in the mills and the factories, of the men in the mines and on the railroads. I am thinking of the women who, for a poultry wage, are compelled to work out their barren lives, of the little children who in this system are robbed of their childhood and in their tender years are seized in the remorseless grasp of mammon and forced into the industrial dungeons, there to feed the monster machine while they themselves are being starved and stunted, body and soul. I see them dwarfed and diseased and their little lives broken and blasted because in this High noon of Christian civilization. Money is still so much more important than the flesh and blood of childhood. In very truth, gold is God today and the rules with pitiless sway in the affairs of men. In this country, the most favored beneath the bending skies, we have vast areas of the richest and most fertile soil, material resources in inexhaustible abundance, the most marvelous productive machinery on earth, and millions of eager workers ready to apply their labor to that machinery to produce in abundance for every man, woman, and child. And if there are still vast numbers of our people who are the victims of poverty and whose lives are an unceasing struggle all the way from youth to old age until at last death comes to their rescue and lulls these hapless victims to dreamless sleep, it is not the fault of the Almighty. It cannot be charged to nature, but it is due entirely to the outgrown social system in which we live that ought to be abolished, not only in the interest of the toiling masses, but in the higher interest of all humanity. 
On the subject of class consciousness, my experience is that it exists and can be built in this layer of society. Certainly prisoners showed enough class consciousness that the FBI and the U.S. government broadly dedicated considerable resources and time in not only quashing these organizing movements inside prisons, but also conducting psychological experiments and studying prisoners. The government would then use what they learned to exploit and divide prisoners and free citizens alike to maintain control and the hegemony of capitalism. Our society teaches and encourages mercenary and anti-solidaristic behaviors. The dictates of capitalism requires the system to constantly consume the workers upon which it depends, as well as the bonus army of dispossessed, disabled, and invisibilized. This bonus army is an underclass to throw into the capitalist meat grinder when the working class shows signs of organization. The desperation of an underclass living in an oppressive system which requires a vast number of people to live in poverty and ignorance is a major factor in creating people without loyalty to each other, and people who cling only to accumulation and the immature internalization of capitalism's message get yours. Wealth is the only measure of success. Profit is the highest ideal at any cost. Think of the clout chasers, the grifters, the grindsetters. All this to say, I don't put the incarcerated on any kind of pedestal or look to the lumpen proletariat to be the base of revolutionary change. I do think, and know through personal experience, that there is a percentage of incarcerated who know and transmit solidarity, that do organize, and that, as an important note, a grouping that has been annealed through the forging fire to be mentally prepared for the fight to change this world. I do not recommend prison. Avoid prison whenever possible. But I meet a lot of people who intellectually want some sort of change in this world, who also appear underprepared for a conflict with capitalism, who have neither exercised the will nor calculated the cost or sacrifice that will be required. Our society has cultivated a lot of soft people living in a world of treats, fantasy escapes, and privilege. I'm not immune to treats, escapes, and privileges. A tall white guy in a society like myself has lots of privileges. I've certainly indulged in escapes and treats, but there's something for us to learn from the incarcerated who came through and evolved from knavery, from a mercenary worldview, to instead become organized and solidaristic. People can and do change. Some of us are hard-headed and learn while climbing from a pit of self-destruction or societal damage. I hope your path is a better one, but I urge you to harden and strengthen your resolve, while also most importantly expanding your capacity to love humanity and yourself. Resolve without love is not enough. Fighting the system as revenants, remorseless living dead propelled by a mission, is not enough and not the world to be built together. It will take will and love and vision. When the suffragette Helen Todd, fighting for the rights of women to vote in 1910, spoke of, quote, bread for all and roses too. She had a vision larger than just winning sustenance. In a speech that year, she said, Not at once, but woman is the mothering element in the world, and her vote will go toward helping forward the time when life's bread, which is home, shelter, and security, and the roses of life, music, education, nature, and books, shall be the heritage of every child that is born in the country, in the government of which she has a voice. In echoing Helen Todd, I would say, there is work to do in building a mass movement to change conditions. The work will not be easy, but never lose sight of the roses of this life. Hold the vision of a better world in your heart.
Subscribe to Sunder right now and catch the whole tale. There's more to this story of bank robbery and politics and taking action in a troubled world. You can help me by rating and reviewing the podcast. It makes the podcast more visible and makes a real difference. Sunder is written, edited, and produced by Brian Denning. The theme song is by Holy Sons. You can contact Sunder at podcastsunder at gmail.com. Support the work being done here by subscribing on Patreon. Even better, become a dues-paying, participating member of your local DSA chapter, or become a member of Jobs with Justice. You have the ability to change this world. Good hunting.